can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. And as we begin to approach the end of this chapter, we realize that Paul's coming to a conclusion of this section, in 9, 10, and 11, this, this detour he's made in this letter he's writing uh, to the church at Rome. And don't ever forget, it's interesting, you know, you can get plugging along in your Bible reading, or we're going slowly, verse by verse, through this, and we can forget that this is a letter to a church. A church that Paul had never met, he'd never been with, he desired to be with them, he expressed that in chapter 1. So this is a church of believers, of Jews and Gentiles alike, of, of people with dis- different personalities, different socioeconomics, some were rich, some were poor, um, different family heritages, often different languages that would come together, they understood together the word of God and they desired to worship God together. And so Paul is telling them, as he, as he makes known in chapter 1, that this, his letter, he wants to encourage them in the gospel of God. And he was telling them, even in chapter 1, and we've seen it evident in every chapter, he's displaying that the gospel is about God's righteousness. It's not so much about your righteousness and whether you have been able to make yourself right before God, a self-righteousness in a sense, right? What, what is your religion like? It's not what the gospel's about. He tells us the gospel is about God. That God is the gospel. That the only way to have good news is if God is righteous and he will give you that righteousness. That's the only good news. And so he spends this entire letter to the church at Rome that they would not have had chapter breaks and numbers. They would have read it in a sitting and passed it on and read it in a sitting and read it and read it. And they would have mauled over these hard truths. Romans is a hard book. It's a heavy book. It's full of so much teaching and doctrine But Paul thinks it is vitally important for the people of God to understand why. And you begin to see it kind of culminate here at the end of chapter 11. What what is it about knowing things about God or about knowing teaching or knowing doctrine that helped a Christian? Why is that so important? And we see here the end of Romans chapter 11, Paul sing a short hymn. He, He resounds with this praise. Because he knows God. And so he's encouraging believers of all time, not just at the church at Rome, but God, by his grace, has given us this letter to know God better, to know how God saves people, and to just to be left in awe. At the end of Romans chapter 11, you'll read in verse 33, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul ends this section, a difficult section, a detoured section, but an important section. He ends it with a song of praise, and we're just going to look at one piece of this praise this morning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. You think about the context of when Paul is saying this. It's really important as you read the Bible, as you study the Bible, to go, when is this being said? And not just in history, but in location. What has he just said? that now has spurred this, or maybe that this 
makes greater sense or it has a deeper meaning because of what he has just said. He has just finished a whole section on how God saves people and how he has in the past and how he continues to and will save people. He finishes whole section and he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oftentimes we think we are pretty wise. We think we know a lot until you are slapped in the face by the knowledge and the wisdom of God. The greatest example that we have recorded of this is Job, right? Job in the Old Testament, a, who was a godly man. He was a righteous man in, in all sorts of senses until you get to about chapter 3 of Job. Then you realize, yeah, he's got some wickedness in his heart and he's got some selfishness in his heart. His friends didn't help. He had really bad friends. And so that's uh, part of being having a good friend circle and having a good church is that you need people who know what they're talking about if they're going to encourage you. And here's the thing. When you're going through a time, people should likely just be quiet uh, because they don't know what to say. And Job is a great example of this. There's, there's hints of truth in, in most of what the men said to him to try to encourage him. But God rebukes them all. Um, and... So Job's story, if you know it, Job is a righteous man. Things are going well for him. He's known to, to love the poor and to care for the needy in his community. He's known as this guy who loves God. And, and Satan sees this and says, look, it, he, he's only that way. He only is faithful to you, God, because he's got so much. So God says, all right, take it away, but don't take his life. So then he, he, God gives Satan power like a dog on a chain, dog on a leash. He says, go. And so Satan has at it, and Job's farm and all that he has, all of his source of income is destroyed. And then he hears word that beyond that, beyond his, his livestock being stolen, his crops being demolished, now he hears word that his kids were all having a party together and the house collapsed. And they're all dead, his kids and grandkids, dead. And then he begins to get ailments on his body, so sore that he's trying to scrape them off with broken uh, pot of clay. He's going through an extreme trial. His wife says, you should just curse God and die. And here's Job's life. And so then his friends come to try to comfort him. They did good for the first seven days. They didn't say a word. They just sat and they cried with him. And they just weeped with him. And that was great. That's good friendship right there. But then they opened their mouth and thought, you know what, Job? You had to have done something wrong. Because this does not happen if you're righteous. Because they had this whole idea of karma. Right? What goes around comes around. So something must have gone around, Job, and look what's happened to you now. And so then they begin giving him all this advice that, that is flavored with truths about who God is and what God, how God operates. Yeah, there's some truth to what they said, but in the end, I love my favorite chapter of Job is 38. God finally speaks up. He's silent for so long, and God finally speaks up. I love it. Because there, as God speaks up to Job, who who now at this point is going, yeah, why, why has this happened to me? And, and I know better. I this. And so Job 38 is just this incredible God billowing out of the clouds to Job and just um, speaking to him. I've I got to read part of it for you just because this is what humbled Job. And I, I think it's important as we begin to think about uh, our wisdom and our knowledge and God's wisdom and God's knowledge. And so... The Lord answers Job in Job 38. says, 
Who was it that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make known to me. Like, Job, if you're a know-it-all, if you think you got answers, you think you got knowledge, I'll question you. Pop quiz, Job. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the, the sea with doors when it burst forth out of the womb? And when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling. He says, have you commanded the morning since your days began? And caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth? He says, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked on the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. He says, um, have you entered the storehouses of snow? And have you seen the storehouses of, of hail? It's incredible. He, keeps, he goes on and on for this entire chapter. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that it rains, pretty much? Like, can you make it rain? Do you see where the snow is stored? Have you determined where the edge of the ocean will be and no further? Have you done all these things? He said, did you give birth to the mountains? Were you there? He goes on and on and on. And he's just showing Job, really, his, his wisdom, his knowledge, and his power. And, and I love Job chapter 40. He says, then Job answered, the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I'll proceed no further. And then God comes back again at him and gives him more challenge and says, Were you there when I did this and this and this and I did this in this way? Were you there to, to give me counsel? Were you there to tell me how it was done? Or are you wise enough to do that? And then Job again answers the Lord and he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I do not understand. Things too wonderful to me, which I did not know. Here, I will speak, I will question you, I will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, when, I'm going to read that again. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. He said, I'd, I'd heard about you, God. I'd heard about you, and I thought I got you, but now I see. And now that I have seen, now that I, and really, what has he seen here? He has seen the infinite wisdom and knowledge of God and his insufficiency. He says, now that I have seen, I am utterly dismayed at who I am before you. And I repent. I repent. And so then, thinking about the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God that that Paul mentions here in Romans chapter 11, he, he just comes out of this really hard discussion about Israel and about election, and about how not all of Israel at the time of Paul saying, he says, 
Some of them are not saved. And I grieve that. He says, there are people who are, are not chosen by God. And I, I grieve that. And then he's, he breaks out and he says, but oh, the depth of your wisdom, God. Of your knowledge. Almost like, Job, these things are too wonderful for me. He's speaking of depth. You know, we have this phrase, deep pockets. What does it mean? Someone's wealthy. The idea of deep pockets is a wealthy person. So when there is a depth of riches, it means that there is, in God, infinite wealth. Of what? Of wisdom and of knowledge. There is infinite Wealth, there is an unending supply of wisdom and knowledge. But what's amazing is it's not just a supply to God. Like God is provided with wisdom. He has wisdom from outside. He has learned things. God is himself all wise and wholly knowing. And so that's what we're going to look at today. What's amazing though is this idea of depth. You know, if you were to try to tell someone how deep something is, and you're trying to exaggerate the point, you would say something like, oh, it's as deep as the ocean, right? Like, that seems to be our, our deepest thing that we can imagine, because here on earth, that is the deepest we can go, is the, the ocean floor. But did you know the deepest part of the ocean is only 11 kilometers deep? That's here to Dutton. That's the deepest part of the ocean. Like, that's not that far, to be honest. And so when we have this, this vision of how deep things are, like the ocean. It's only 11 kilometers. That is not the limit to the depth of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. It's not got a limit to it. This, this, it was better to think of as a height, right? Because you thinking of height, you think of how far is far that way. Well, they're ever discovering the expanse of God's universe in every direction. So that's a better way to think of a measurement of how, how vast, how deep, how much is something. So... Oh, how deep, he says. Oh, the depth. It is a pool of unending supply. And it's unimaginable. This is the vision of God that Paul has. It's not the vision of of wisdom itself or of knowledge itself. Paul is not amazed at wisdom. He's not amazed at knowledge. He's amazed at God and his wisdom and God and his knowledge. So, what does it mean for God then to be rich in wisdom? There's a depth of his richness in wisdom. What does that even mean? J.I. Packer, in a a great book that you should all read called Knowing God. Hard book, but great book to read. He says this about the wisdom of God. He said, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom is, in fact, the practical side of moral goodness. As such, it is found in the fullness only in God. He alone is naturally and entirely and uh, invariably wise. His wisdom ever waketh, says the hymn. And it is true. Wisdom, as the old theologians used to say, is his essence just as power and truth and goodness are his essence. They are integral elements of his character. Omniscience, governing omnipotence, infinite power by infinite wisdom. 
It's a biblical description of the divine character of God. So, God's knowledge, his all-knowingness, his omniscience, is governed by his wisdom. Because God is all-wise, it governs his knowledge, but that's, it's who he is, it's part of his element, his character. And so when you think about the attributes of God, if you, it's interesting, because well, I don't think we spend enough time thinking about the attributes of God. We spend enough time thinking about oh, Jesus and his life and, and the story of Jonah and, and all these things. Do we really stop to think about who is God? Um, because it's because Paul knew who God was that he's able to conclude in this verse, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God. He knew that he was all wise. So then, how is he concluding that even in this letter to Romans? How can the Romans be sitting there and go, yes, amen? How can you and I be sitting here and, and with Paul say, amen? God is rich in wisdom based on what we've just read in Romans 1 through 11. How do we know? What is a display of God's wisdom? So there's a few things that it does. First, it displays, the book of Romans displays God's wisdom and justification on how he justifies a sinner, a, a criminal. How does God clear their record? It's, it's only in his wisdom. No human would ever imagine the plan of salvation that God had. God coming in the flesh and dealing with it himself. That's God's depth of his riches in his wisdom. His wisdom thought that way. No human ever would. How would it make sense that you and I would think, okay, if, if someone has got things against you, that you're, if, if someone has killed your loved one, that you say, you know what, I'm going to go to prison instead. I'm going to go to prison. I'm going to take a life sentence for them. They killed my husband or my wife or my child. I'm going to go to prison for life. No, human wisdom does not tell us that that's the way to forgive someone. But the wisdom of God says that's the way. Jesus came, and he came as a, and was counted as a sinner for you and for me. He stood as that criminal. He was condemned as a criminal. He had the punishment and penalty as a criminal so that your record of wrong, your criminal record is gone. He's, he's wise and infinitely wise and, and unfathomably wise in justification. How he justifies sinner is wise and not in human wisdom. It doesn't make sense to us. And so we see that in Romans chapter 1 through 5. We see how, how God justifies a sinner. That is through the propitiation, Romans 3 tells us, that is by Christ absorbing that wrath, taking our place by being a, an atoning sacrifice in our place. He is wise in his justification. Romans also shows us that he is exercising his rich in wisdom through his wisdom in sanctification. How does he make a person more like Jesus? We would think, in our wisdom, likely, well, just give them more religious stuff. Give them more uh, things to do and books to read and verses to remember. That always makes someone more religious and more like Jesus. Not true. Some can have all the head knowledge in the world. They can memorize the scripture and not be like Jesus. We see lots of evidence of that. Lots of it. It's disgusting. Those men in London that have been in the news recently screaming at people, thinking this is the scriptural way to convert people by telling them they're all whores of Babylon. 
That's not wise. And that's not biblical. That's not gospel. But they know scriptures. They're quoting scriptures left, right, and center. But are they sanctified? Are they like Jesus? No. So knowing scripture, going to church, praying, doing all these things does not sanctify a person, per se. So then what is God's wisdom teach us of sanctification? Well, God is wise to sanctify us through trials. Through trials and tribulations. And Romans chapter 8 teaches us this. And that, that in all things, including all the hard things he mentions in chapter 8, through all things, he's working to the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, so that we might be like Christ. Romans 8, uh, 28 and further. His wisdom in sanctification is not positive, but uh, pressure in a sense. How do you learn patience? He gives you opportunities to be patient. How do you learn not to be greedy? Well, he often will rip away all that you have. How do you learn what it means to love a person? Well, he will probably teach you through you not being loved well. How do you learn to um, trust in the faithfulness of God? It'll be likely when someone is unfaithful to you. Sanctification is a difficult process. And it's not in a way that you and I would ever decide. If we had our way and we thought, in my wisdom, I get to decide what sanctification looks, it's easy. It's easy. It's as easy as going to church, reading the Bible once a day, and praying at meals, maybe. That would be great if I could just become more like Jesus that way. That's not how it works. It works through trial and fire. That's how God makes us more like Jesus. And therefore, it just better reflects the image of Jesus. He has wisdom in his sanctification. We learn that in Romans. And then also, most recently in Romans, from chapters 9 through 11, we see that he is rich in wisdom in history. We see that he, in his wisdom, has cut off Israel for a time. In, in our minds, in an Israel mind, and in human mind, you think, that makes no sense. In order to propel your purpose and, and have people believe that you're the God of the covenants, who keeps covenant and you love people, that in your wisdom you think it's greatest to cut them off for a time? We don't think that's right, but in God's wisdom it's perfect. It's perfect. And we, and we discovered that. Most recently we discovered that. That God is so wise to cut off Israel so that you and I could be saved. We're so thankful in his wisdom in history. Not just in justification and sanctification, but in history. He is rich in his wisdom. Ways that you would never work. So God's wisdom in us. What does it have to do with us? Yes, God is all wise, but what about us? Well, we are to be pursuing wisdom. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time. It's important because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but what? Understand what the will of the Lord is. So we are then to pursue based on the beautiful and rich and deep wisdom of God. We are to go, okay, I got to make the best use of my time. That's wisdom. How do I do that? By knowing what God desires. God has communicated His will to us through His Word. And so, if we want to be wise, wouldn't it be best to walk according to how God says to? Yeah. We want to be wise because God is wise. And so, Colossians 4 tells us to walk in wisdom. 
where? Towards outsiders, making the best use of time. If we want to be sanctified, we want to show people Jesus, we want to show people how God saves people in his wisdom of justifying people, then it says, then we have to walk in wisdom among outsiders, making the best use of time. We're not to be wasteful. We're not to just live how we want to live. No, we live in accordance with the will of God, making the best use of our time amongst the people that God has created. Well, where do we get this wisdom? Well, should we ask for it? Yes. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, which you have to come to that knowledge, right? You have to come to that realization, kind of like Job did, that he didn't know everything. And you have to come to the place where you say, You know what? I'm, I'm not as wise as God, first off. I'm not as wise as I could be, and I never will be. And so then, James 1.5 is a great promise for you. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives abundantly to all without reproach. He does not hold back wisdom to those who ask him. He doesn't. Out of his riches of his wisdom, he will give you wisdom. And where do we get this wisdom? Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So to revere God, to tremble at God, to respect God, God in all of his ways to follow him as the Lord and leader of your life. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's where you start. You want to be wise? Tremble before God and his word. Secondly, where we get wisdom is from his word. Psalm 119 says, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me. God's word makes us wise. If you want to be wise so that you will better reflect Jesus and better show the world how God has, in his wisdom, saved you, and God, in his wisdom, is sanctifying you and making you like Jesus, if you want to show people that, then we ought to be wise. We ought to look carefully how we walk. Be wise. Not as unwise, but as wise. So God's wisdom is a humbling thing for us because we would not make decisions God makes. But... We know God's wisdom is perfect, and so we also ought to then be people of wisdom. But what about his knowledge? It says not only is he deep in the riches of his wisdom, which is unfathomable for us, but in the riches of his knowledge as well. So while we only have partial and incomplete and imperfect knowledge, God's knowledge is not not partial. His knowledge is complete, and it is perfect. It's amazing. Arthur Pink says this, that God is omniscient. That's the uh, theological word for he is all-knowing. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Everything possible. Everything actual. All events. All creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. He never errs, never changes, and never overlooks anything. God is all-knowing. He is rich in his knowledge. That ought to humble us. What does it do in a believer to know that God is rich in his knowledge? Well, it produces amazement and worship. Amazement and worship. Psalm 139 says this, 
of God. Listen, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Oh, the depth. It's the same echoing that Paul has. Oh, the depth of the riches of God's knowledge of me. It produces amazement and worship. That God, you know me. He knows the hairs or the lack of hairs on your head. How many there are. He knows how many good cells are in your body and how many bad cells. He knows how many cancer cells are present. He knows what that cancer cell looks like and how long it'll last and if it'll spread or not. He knows from the smallest of molecules to the greatest of greats. He knows. There's nothing outside of his knowledge and it's not as though his knowledge is needing to be expanded. A child once asked, well, does God know how to use a computer? Of course God knows. Of course God knows how to compute. That seems interesting, right? Because you think God's an ancient God and there was no computers. Like, do you wait, do you think God's in time and now all of a sudden he's like this 10,000-year-old thing who's just like, what's a computer? No, God knows about computers. And, and so it, it's funny, but at the same time you're going, I guess he does. He does. God knows all things. And he knows them perfectly. And it's not as though he's learned something. It's incredible. Doesn't that just amaze you? To think about all the technological advances, and yet God knew them. And knew them perfectly. And knows how they will succeed, and knows how they will fail. Knows how they will be used for good, and how they will be used for evil. God knows it. And in that knowledge, think about that knowledge of all that God knows. And yet, in his wisdom, what he lets happen in the world. He, he knows about technological advances in weaponry. In nuclear power, he knows. And he's always known what it was capable of. And yet, in his wisdom, he has allowed it. Wow. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He knows. He knows about cancer and he knows about a cure for cancer if there is one. And yet, in his wisdom, he has allowed it not to be found or to be concealed, whatever it may be. Wow. Once you begin to think about God's knowledge, it really shapes the way you think about His wisdom, doesn't it? Like, he knows all things, and yet He has chosen this for me. It's amazing, but it's not just in the negative, right? It's not where we're just like, oh, God knows about that and He still allows it, like cancer and wars and... Uh, tsunamis, but, but in the positive, right? God knows about the accident on the road up ahead, and he knows that your life is to be preserved, and so you need a bathroom break. In his wisdom, he makes you need a bathroom break. So God's wisdom operates in accordance with his knowledge. He knows all things. He is outside of time. He is outside of needing to learn things about you in real time, like, Oh no, I saw an accident on 401. I better make sure I rearrange things. No, he's already known about that accident for two millennia. 
think, what? There wasn't cars. Can you begin to see how Paul's mind is exploding as he thinks, oh, the knowledge of God? That's to be our mind. As we think about God, is, what does he know about me? What does he know about my tomorrow? I wonder what God knows about my ten years from now. And, and I, I trust his wisdom. I trust his wisdom. It doesn't just give you a great sense of, of peace in knowing God and in knowing how wonderful he is and all that he knows. It's good. Yeah, God, you are so wise and I am so glad. I'm so glad that I'm not in control and I surrender myself fully to you. If you are leading, don't ever let me try to walk the other way because I know you are good and that you're working all things, even if it's an accident or cancer, you're working all things for my good and my sanctification. That's your wisdom. God in his perfect knowledge does this. So we surrender ourselves daily to this sort of worship of God and amazement of God. Oh, the depth of his knowledge stirs up in us an incredible amazement and worship of this God. What does he know? He knows all. He's all-knowing. So it produces amazement, but the knowledge of God, listen, also produces a frightening effect. God knows your sin. He knows what you don't think other people know. He knows the intent of your heart. He knows even when you're trying to lie to yourself. And you say, oh no, this, uh, this isn't that bad. Or, I'm not really thinking that way. I'm not really being greedy. I'm just doing this thing. God, God knows the motive of your heart. He knows your sinfulness. It ought to make us tremble too. But in his wisdom, in his wisdom, just like he did with Job, just like he did with Satan, he allows things on a leash. In his wisdom, he allows things to happen. But it ought to amaze us, it ought to frighten us to know the wisdom of God what else it does is not only amaze us and frighten us, it, the knowledge of God and, and understanding the depth of the knowledge of God, it actually helps us pray. It helps us pray. Here's what Matthew 6 says. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their empty words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So you don't need to heap up empty phrases thinking that you're going to inform God of something he doesn't already know. Don't don't waste your time. Just just pour out your heart genuinely before God. It helps you to pray. Even at times where you're lost for words, it helps you to pray, God, you know already what tomorrow faces. Like, I'm not even going to try to imagine that. I'll let tomorrow worry about itself. But I trust you in it. I trust your knowledge and, and your wisdom. So help me, right? Like, it helps us to pray, thinking about the knowledge of God. So God and the believer is an amazing thing. It gives us a sense of awe and wonder, frightens us, so that we would confess our sins before God, knowing that he knows the depth of them, and that helps us to pray before him. But think about God, his knowledge, and, and the unbeliever. Think about what that means to an unbeliever. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
unbelievers think that God doesn't know. That they don't, they escape God's sight. That he doesn't see their life, he doesn't see their circumstance, he doesn't see their sin. Scripture tells us he sees it all, he knows it all, and that they'll be held accountable for it all. That's the beauty of God's wisdom, is when they can begin to see that, then they can begin to see God's wise plan of salvation, his wise plan of sanctification, and his wise plan of the unfolding of history. Oh, that they would know this. Pray. Pray for those you know who do not yet know Christ, that they would get a glimpse of the knowledge of God. That if they could be an unbeliever in Job's sort of situation, to, to be wrecked, so that they could go, I thought I knew, and I thought I knew, and I thought I knew, and then God would overwhelm them with his knowledge, and for them to say, who am I? Like, here I am on earth trying to instruct God. Pray for the unbeliever that they would have a glimpse of the knowledge of God. Pray for other believers that you know. Pray for each other that we would have a a greater view of this depth of the knowledge of God. Because then, it helps us to have a greater trust in the depth of the wisdom of God. What an incredible thing to discover. The wisdom and the knowledge of God. May it produce in us a great amazement a proper trembling, and a better prayer life. For his glory, let's pray. Oh God, how do we even um, approach you? How do we even come before you without sounding empty and sounding, and really just being as though we don't know what we're saying? God, you know all things. You know even the intentions of our heart. You know each person in this room right now. You know what's going on in their thought process. You know the sins they're committed. You know the sins they will commit tomorrow. You know the sins they are struggling with, the temptations that are difficult. But you also know the freedom they may have. You know the guiltlessness they may experience in Christ. You know the eternal rest they may have in Christ as well. So God, we thank you that in your perfect knowledge that you operate in wisdom. God, we pray that even just in this moment you would humble us by that truth, especially when we consider the gospel, we consider our sin being dealt with by Christ. God, would you humble us? Would you make us thankful? Would you amaze us? as we considered the cross and all that it meant. For your honor and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.